Come here. Hey, is she here yet? Kermy, you're all dressed up. Well, of course. Linda Ronstadt is our guest. Oh, yes, the uh, girl singer. Oh, I just can't wait to meet her. She is terrific. And besides that, she's a real foxy lady. <laughs> foxy lady? Hey, excuse me, I gotta get the flowers I ordered. Flowers? Oh, good grief, it's what's your name, Ronstadt? Hi, Miss Peggy. Have you seen Kermit? <laughs> Many times, dear. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, 120 episodes. It's... So, given the way that this podcast started, it does feel very weird to get here because we've passed through, like, we barely touched on Sesame Street. We did a couple of other things. We had like an episode or two on Sam and Friends, and then the bulk of it has been the Muppet Show itself. And now that we're hitting the end of that, I, I know we're getting ready to shift gears again, but it's just it's going to feel weird. Yeah, it feels weird. It, it but but there's a sense of accomplishment. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get to um, next week when we when we get to our our best of. We're not done with season. We haven't even talked about the end of season five yet. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started. We'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Instagram and uh, Facebook and lunaticdaring.com where you can check out our episodes, our bibliography, and our watch list. We're currently going through The Muppet Show two episodes at a time and we have reached the end. Tonight we are talking about the final two episodes, not, not in recorded order, but in production order. The final two episodes of The Muppet Show. The Disney, in the Disney Plus order, the last two at the bottom of the list. And it's a, it's a weird, it is a weird feeling. I definitely agree. But there's plenty more to watch and plenty more to do. But l- let's, let's just get started. Let's get started. Thank you, thank you, and welcome again to The Muppet Show. And you picked a great show not to miss because our guest star is one of the great singers of all time, Miss Linda Ronstadt. So Nick, I've talked on here about certain female guest stars that were formative in the Life of a young me. Miss Moreno. Miss uh, the dearly, dearly and nearly departed Raquel Welch. Who just passed away last week. Liza Minnelli to a little bit. But this week, this week, our guest star is my girlfriend. Linda Ronstadt was 100% when I was five years old, my girlfriend. This episode is... Uh, anyway. Linda Maria Ronstadt was born July 15th, 1946 in Tucson, Arizona, the third of four children. Uh, they're of Mexican and, and uh, German descent and grew up about 30 miles from the border. At age 14, she formed a folk trio with her brother Peter and her sister Gretchen. The group played coffee houses, fraternity houses, and other small venues, billing themselves as the Union City Ramblers. Their rep- repertoire included music that they grew up on, folk, country, bluegrass, and Mexican. And in 1964, after a semester of, at Arizona State University, the 18-year-old decided to move to Los Angeles because that's where things were happening. In the 60s, she joined with two other musicians and became the lead singer of the folk rock trio, The Stone Ponies. Their biggest hit, Different Drum, was written by Michael Nesmith, The Monkees, actually, before he was in The Monkees, but still. 
I just thought that was funny. You and I travel to the beat of a different drum. How can you tell by the way I run? Every time you make eyes at me. Whoa, you cry and moan and say you work out. But honey child, I've got my doubts. You can't see the forest or the tree. She soon, at the request of the record company, went entirely solo, dumped the other two guys, and released an album. Her solo shot didn't do too well, um, but she toured with The Doors and Neil Young and Jackson Brown and others, sang on other people's records. Um, Her second album, Silk Purse, didn't do very well either, but it did get her first solo hit, uh, the, the single A Long, Long Time, recently used in the HBO television show The Last of Us. It's a great effect. Love will abide. Take things in stride Sounds like good advice But there's no one at my side And time washes clean Love's wounds unseen That's what someone told me but I don't know what it means Cause I've done everything I know To try and make you mine And I think I'm gonna love you For a long, long time In the 70s, Ronstadt really took off with the albums Heart Like a Wheel, Dreams, and Living in the USA, and she became the biggest female recording artist of the mid to late 70s. She was dubbed the First Lady of Rock, it was called the Queen of Rock, appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone six times. While she was on tour, two of her bandmates, Don Henley and Glenn Frey, uh, quit the group after hanging out a bunch, and uh, they went and formed this band called The Eagles. No. 
Uh, she toured for years as her star rose, um, eventually getting to the point where she's playing amphitheaters and stadiums. And then after about a decade of that, she quit. She she didn't like playing amphitheaters and stadiums. She wanted to play somewhere smaller. She wanted to play. She wanted to get back to playing small venues like theaters and and. When she and that led her to Broadway uh, in the eighties, she appeared in uh, the Pirates of Penzance, uh, which is a Gilbert and Sullivan play, which is a whole other type of singing from the rock and roll singing she's used to, and uh, she won, won a Tony nomination for her role in it. Um, she also worked with the great composer Philip Glass. She recorded traditional music uh, and remained one of the best-selling acts throughout the eighties, pumping out platinum record after platinum record. She actually had five platinum records in a row, which is a record for a female performer. She recorded country. She recorded jazz. She recorded American standards. She recorded Latin records, all, all sorts of genres. She was constantly changing her stripes and changing what kind of genre of music she was, she was, that she was practicing. Linda is known. The thing about her is that you have to realize that she's an interpretive singer, meaning she only did songs that were written by other people, but the art in it is bringing her spin to the song in her lengthy career. She only wrote three songs. Despite the fact that she released over 30 studio albums and sold a hundred million records. She only wrote three songs in 2011. Linda retired from performing her last show had been in 2009. Uh, she had developed Parkinson's disease and could no longer sing. Uh, she says that she still knows how to sing. It's still there in her brain. Um, but it just doesn't make the transition. The, uh, it just doesn't make the trip to her mouth anymore. Um, so one of the great kind of voices of the 20th century kind of silenced, which sucks. Uh, her politics lean left. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014 and was a Kennedy Center honoree in 2019. She dated California Governor Jerry Brown while he was still in office and running for president. She dated comedian Jim Carrey when he was 21 and she was 36 and he was a nobody and she was a rock star and was engaged to Star Wars director George Lucas from 88 to 80, from 83 to 88, although that obviously didn't work out. In 2013, she published her memoir, Simple Dreams, a, a musical memoir. She describes herself as a spiritual atheist. Uh, she never married, but has adopted two children. She is currently 76 for a better version of this, uh, watch the 2019 documentary, Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice. Uh, it, it's a good documentary. It's a little soft. It's a little easy on its subject, you know, like there's not a whole lot of warts there, but it's a good retrospective of her career. And I think she still lives in San Francisco. So if you see her walking around, Nick, tell her I said hi. I'm going to be honest with you, Chad. If I see a random celebrity walking around outside of Don Cheadle, I might actually do that to Don Cheadle because he's apparently met you. But like anyone else... <laughs> Also, I really want to play dominoes with Don Cheadle. That has nothing to do with the rest of this podcast. It's just like a personal dream. I recommend it. That's Linda Ronstadt. She's like the exact age of my mother-in-law. When I was a kid, fell, just fell absolutely in love with her as a kid. You know, uh, I've talked about like the music um, that I would listen to in the back of my parents' car when we were on car trips, you know, and it was always like Kenny Rogers and John Denver and Air Supply and um, Simon and Garfunkel, probably the best of the bunch. And the only female voice in that mix was Linda Ronstadt. Dad loved Linda Ronstadt. Muppet Show episode number 523, a special guest, Linda Ronstadt, produced late May 1980. For some reason, I don't have the release date on here because I'm a dummy. Linda comes in to see Pops 
and uh, Pops informs her that Kermit has told her to told him to roll out the red carpet. And he unfurls a giant red carpet, but it's got a giant hole in it. And um, she asks if we have a little moth problem. And he says, no, we have a big moth problem. And then he, it's not scary moth, but a very large moth then kind of flies into the screen with the the sound of an airplane behind it. Honestly, I thought that joke was going somewhere else, but your kids listen to this podcast. I'm going to leave that part alone. (laughs) Um, But the moth itself could have easily been a bit more scary. It actually made me think of the intro to reading rainbow where you see like that giant butterfly. I mean, it's a moth, but you get the idea. I just wanted LeVar Burton to poke his head into the frame. That improves everything. That improves, improves most things, at least. I guess it didn't improve Jeopardy, at least not according to him. Oh, no, he's the one that didn't want to do it. I know. it's He was pushing for that for a minute. Well, though. no, everybody else was pushing for it. He didn't push mm-hmm. for it. Everyone said, you know who would be great at, re- at Jeopardy? LeVar Burton. And everyone, it was like when Donald Glover was going to be Spider-Man. It wasn't him that said it. It was all these people came up with the idea at the same time. Uh, we have our Muppet Show theme. Gonzo um, blows his trumpet. And it blows out a bunch of popcorn. Now, this clip has been used before, and we thought it was teeth. It's Somehow, it's less scary this time. Maybe it is just because it's familiar. Well, no, but they added a line. This time, they added a line where, where Gonzo goes, it's popcorn. That wasn't there the first time. So they So, they must have, like, realized that it looked like teeth the first time. That's the only explanation for why they would go redub a line for this. Kermit very briefly introduces Bugsy and his hypnotized horse. The horse with the unblinking red eyes. This is just uh, one of those sketches that like is introduced just so we can get our characters backstage. Um, but the important thing to remember to notice too is that Kermit is dressed up tonight. Kermit's very excited tonight. His the the backstage story for the episode is that Kermit has got a crush on Linda Ronstadt, and as we'll find out, Linda Ronstadt has a crush on Kermit. And that is our backstage story. So Kermit is dressed up in a white suit. He's rare. He's looking good. Scooter and Gonzo are backstage and they've got this large trunk. And what do you think is in this large trunk? What would what would Gonzo store in a large trunk like this? Actually, I did want to address that directly just because I think this might be direct continuity to the last episode. Because the or actually it might not be the last episode, but um the power outages that we were having when Bo got shocked and everything was because Gonzo's trying to keep air conditioner on his mildew collection. His mildew collection. Yeah. It, it's not a far jump. I was wondering if it, they were just sort of tying. I mean, obviously they're not looking to establish like a three episode arc or anything, but it, the, the sideway from one end to the next is like, okay, well that's, that's pretty cool to see them actually like bring that in for a payoff. But this is his fungus collection though. Isn't mildew fungus. I'm probably super ignorant by asking. I don't, that. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. They're, they're probably related in some way. They both grow on stuff, but uh, it's Gonzo's fungus collection is in this big steamer trunk. And then Piggy comes down and Piggy notices that Kermit is looking pretty sharp tonight. She asks why. And he, Kermit, completely unaware of the situation, just completely unaware, is making sure that he looks good. And he says, because Linda Ronstadt's coming on the show tonight. And he says that she's and she is a foxy lady. So I think that last line was what did it. Because if Kermit's a little too evasive, then Piggy would be suspicious too. He even bought her flowers. He never buys her or he never buys piggy flowers. He never buys piggy flowers. Of course, as we'll find out later, they're still not a couple. No, they're not a couple. I don't think Kermit's ever really accepted her affection at any point during the show. He's been sweet to her and there's been a, there's been a moment here or there, but then he also fired her one time and it was really funny. She earned that. 
So you never know. Um, so Piggy comes down and Piggy, once, once Kermit describes uh, Linda as a foxy lady, that's enough for Piggy because she already gets jealous when any girl singer comes around. I feel like we've been getting not enough Piggy lately. I'm glad these last two episodes have a lot of her. I was thinking the same thing. Like the on the Johnny Cash episode, you only really see her in the closing number, but she wasn't part of anything. I mean, granted, she probably would have fought Lemmy, but still. So Piggy, Piggy, always solution oriented, decides that the, her best course of action is to lock Kermit in the trunk full of fungus to keep him away from Linda to make sure that they don't meet. And then Linda comes down looking for Kermit wearing... What looks like old-fashioned underwear? <laughs> her outfit's very strange for this. Piggy even comments on it, I think. And tells her, you know, says that, oh, she has time to go get the rest of her clothes on or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a very weird outfit Linda's wearing in this. Piggy comes out on stage, says that, um, has the chef introduce Linda because she can't be bothered. So she has the chef do it. And uh, the chef introduces Linda Ross. I love that chef was in, was in charge of that. Of all the people to go out and explain who someone is. So we get her first number. This number was um, uh, shown in the of Muppets and Men documentary. The making of this number. Um, where Linda sings Blue Bayou in a, in a swamp set. I feel so bad, I got a worried mind. I'm so lonesome all the time. Since I left my baby behind, on blue by you. Saving Um, She's backed by. Um, some members of the Mayhem and some members of the Jug Huggers. Originally a Roy Orbison song. He also co-wrote it. But uh, just a nice nice opener. Not much to it. It's just kind of her standing there with her skinny-ass 70s microphone. Um, she was known for singing barefoot. It's a strange thing to be known for. It's a hippie thing, I think. I don't know. <laughs> this would have been pretty close to the height of her popularity, though, when this happened, so... But uh, what'd you think of the number? I thought it was nice. She's got a really nice voice. It's so in the early seasons, we had a lot of those sort of like folksy singers that didn't really gel as much. But and we've, we've talked about like the way the backstage stories integrate. But somehow her she she exists in the space sort of between that folksy singer and also someone that actually makes sense to be on a show with the energy of the Muppets. Um, she's got a really nice. She's got a, a solid and strong voice, but. It does, I'm glad this is one of the last ones that we see for it because I'm not going to put it up there with the Julie Andrews episode, but it, it fits like it just sort of coheres. Well, she's I mean, she can sing anything. She's even done operettas, you know, like her, her range is pretty, pretty insane. Uh, this is, you know, just one of her pop performances, I guess. But um, no, I love her voice. But uh, yeah, but not a whole much to say about it. She just kind of walks around in the swamp and sings Blue Bayou.
get the Swedish chef um, trying to open a bottle of champagne. I don't know how that could possibly go wrong. Even my kids knew that this could not possibly end well. You ever try to open a bottle of champagne with your mouth? I can't afford dental care like that, or at least not until relatively recently. <laughs> so the chef tries to open up the, uh, the big bottle of champagne. It's like a magnum of champagne with his mouth. And he is um, sent flying into the, into the rafters. And then we get our Muppet News Flash. And uh, the Muppet Newsman is reporting on an unidentified flying object. Unidentified flying object. When last seen, it was directly over the Muppet Newsroom. <laughs> He's crashed. The Swedish chef comes crashing down on him. As much as I love Linda and as much as I love the fact that that um, that she's on this episode and is, is kind of like crushworthy as it was when I was a little kid, um, my favorite two numbers in this episode don't have Linda uh, Ronstadt in them. And my first one is The Cat Came Back. I love this one too. Where Rolf sings a song about a guy named Benny trying to get rid of his cat. Benny had a cat that they wouldn't let him keep. So he put her up for sale at a price he thought was cheap. He took her to a neighbor to ask him for advice. He said, Just leave the kitty here. She'll help me with the mice. But the cat came back. She wouldn't stay away. She was sitting on the porch the very next day. The cat came back. She didn't want to roam. The very next day, it was home sweet home. It stars Gaffer the cat, who's, you know, normally the backstage cat who stars in it. And it's Rolf center screen telling us the story of this guy trying to get rid of his cat. And it's just, it's amazing. It's a bad penny version of the cat. I love the way that the cat's performed in it. He's kind of, it's its just a fun, lighthearted, even though it does involve bombs and guns. It's the Muppet it's Show. It's the Muppet Show. The, the, you know, the bombs and guns are met with love, I guess. I really love this number. So, my kids were singing along to it by the end. Yeah, you got that pretty simple. By the, the second chorus, you know it's coming on. Yeah. Yeah, and it's good to see Rolf like at front and center here doing something. So my kids are at this age where romantic things totally gross them out. But Linda's so forward. They're old enough to identify romantic things, but too young to tolerate them. Hmm. So this next number was tough for them. Because Linda finds Kermit in Gonzo's trunk and they're excited to see each other and and there's a little flirting going on she wasted no time she went straight to the point she doesn't she doesn't mess around and Linda sings a song called I've got a crush on you to um to Kermit it's an old George and Ira Gershwin song Linda recorded it on her 83 album so after this actually this was excruciating for my girls (laughs) (laughs) because it was so sweet she even kisses him at the end of it and this is the most love we've seen Kermit get on the show like there have been others but this one this one is her and Kermit from the jump it's probably the most reciprocal relationship we've seen on here outside of maybe Gonzo and Camilla (laughs) yeah so so she sings this nice little song Uh, it's a it's and I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not where my kids are. But it was a little sappy. Mm. It was the 70s or 80s at this point. But yeah, it was a little saccharine. But but yeah, not a hit with not a hit with my children. <laughs> they 
were so they were they were they were yelling they were covering their ears they were covering their eyes they were doing anything they could not to have to watch this this schmaltzy scene that they knew was going to have a kiss in it so then we get to my highlight of the episode which is the uk spot so when this one started i thought they were playing breakfast in america by super tramp because it has the same like initial chord progression but just the the conceit of this is so much fun i'm it's marvin the paranoid android talking about how much he loves life yeah it's just two very very what look to be depressed whatnots covered in wearing old suits covered in cobwebs one's playing the piano one's singing they look could not look more dour and depressed and downtrodden i'm so happy My favorite's the background guy, though. So happy he could die. <laughs> I like the piano player a lot. <laughs> but uh, this is one of my favorite Muppet musical numbers. Um, like it's, it's short, probably two minutes if I had to guess since it's a UK spot, but very, very funny. So then Linda's in her dressing room and she's still looking for Kermit and Janice comes in to say hi for some reason. I think it's to rehearse their next number. And when she's discussing Kermit, she has a picture of Kermit on her dressing room table which seems a little sudden. She's his biggest fan. Linda sings a song called It's in His Kiss, which uh, um, is a famous kind of older, like Motown-y type song. This is where she really lets her voice go. Does he love me? I want to know. How can I tell if he loves me so? Is it in his eyes? Oh, no, you make believe. Is it in his eyes? Oh, I think this is where you really get a sense of what she can do with her voice. And they bring in those, are those the Jeepers Creepers puppets from Phyllis Diller? Yeah. The, look like them. It doesn't creep me out as much because she's not magnifying that presence. But now that you mention it, they absolutely are. I, I was, I was uh, struck by the courage of Richard Hunt singing alongside Linda Ronstadt <laughs> as Janice. Just, I, don't, I don't know if I'd have the nerve to do that. That's... That's some confidence you got there, since she, she was so known for her voice. He's been practicing for a little bit. And then we get uh, Lola, the um, scooter, comes on stage to announce. Well, we still don't have Kermit the Frog, but we do have Lola the Fan Dancer. Which uh, got a really big laugh from my kids as a woman comes out, whatnot woman comes out ready to fan dance. It's like a belly dance sort of. Do what? It's like a belly, do- uh, belly dance sort of get up. Yeah, kind of a belly dancer outfit. Um, but instead of uh, fans like you would use in an actual fan dance, she's got rotary electric fans that you would use to keep yourself cool. And eventually they, I don't think helicopters work that way. Uh, no, no, they do not. No, no. But Jetpacks maybe, but not helicopters. No, Not helicopters. So Linda and Scooter are still trying to find Kermit and they finally figure out that he's back in the trunk. But Piggy interrupts. Scooter, have you seen Kermit? Mm. I'm still looking for him. Aren't we all? Thought he liked me. Oh, yeah. Kermit, are you still in there? 
this. She locked me in. Oh, you got to stop doing this. Pigs in space on stage. <laughs> What's up, guys? Miss Piggy. Hello, Linda, dear. <laughs> Miss Piggy, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Oh. Locking Kermit in that trunk. Um, a trunk. Well, it, uh, it's not a trunk. It's a um, sauna. Yes, it's a sauna. Our frogs love it. Dry heat, don't you know? Piggy on stage now. Oh, yes, yes. I'll just take my prop with me. What's in that trunk? I know, Linda, but the show must go on. So I just want to take a second out to point out that Piggy might have actually grown as a character because at no point during this has she tried to assault Linda. It's minimal growth. That's true. She's not going at, she's not, she's not using, well, I mean, she is kidnapping. She's, there's also a biological weapon aspect of it because she threw him into a place filled with fungus. But I guess I was going to say she's less violent than this, but kidnapping is a pretty serious offense. Yeah. Especially if you keep them in conditions that are not great. Well, if we're going to go out though, I'm glad we're getting this kind of last really strong push by Piggy just to remind us who she really is. So we get pigs in space and the crew of the swine Shrek have captured a deadly battle robot, which they never really explain what that is. But they assume it's in the, the and Piggy comes onto the stage wheeling the, the, the steamer trunk or the, 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 the trunk full of fungus. I think uh, Link actually calls it the, the steamer trunk or a steamer trunk. They bring it on set and Strange Pork, it's, it's very complicated. It's not complicated. It's just kind of weird. Strange Pork gets out his, ro- his robot, his Zappo ray, which is his laser beam. And decides he's going to, they, they, they think that the trunk is the mysterious robot in disguise. Trademark Hasbro. <laughs> Roll out. But th- then Kermit is still inside the trunk yelling and, and it's just kind of chaos and piggy take. And then, uh, oh, that's right. And then a hook comes from off stage and grabs the trunk and hooks it, pulls it back off stage. Um, Linda is rescuing Kermit uh, from it. While well, Lincoln Hogthrob are pretty oblivious to the entire thing of what has just happened. They have, they're in their own little world. I love it when the two of them are kind of in their own little world and Piggy's playing. Piggy's not in the sketch. Mm-hmm. And they still stick, you know, their their method, they still stick to it. You know, off stage, Linda has, has got the trunk and she's trying to get Kermit out. And Piggy expresses something that Linda apparently hadn't heard up until this point. She expresses that she loves Kermit. Again, with the groans for my girls. She loved him pretty quick. She explains that she loves Kermit and Linda didn't realize that apparently. And um, it's kind of a fine, you can have them type thing. And uh, they let Kermit out of the trunk finally. And he gets to come out and um, (laughs) a really great line where Linda brings Kermit on stage to sing a song to him. To sing when I'm, uh, when I grow too old to dream, which is an Oscar Hammerstein song. But they, um, she, uh, she drags Kermit on stage to sing to him and she goes, I know your heart will always belong to Piggy. And he's like, uh, you may know that. And Piggy may know that, but the vote's not in from the the vote's not in yet from the frog. So there are a couple of ways that you could interpret this too. Either a, she legitimately believes what she's saying, because we've seen that she is a little impulsive and very driven by whatever she happens to be feeling at the moment. B. I think she just knows that P- Piggy is just ramping up and this might be self-preservation. I'm not really sure which one we're dealing with. I think she's afraid of Piggy. I think she's practical. So we get we get a we get a nice big Muppet sing along number. Very kind of old school. But you weren't you're working to end a Linda Ronstadt episode without her singing a big ballad. Oh, no. her, she was very, very known for her ballads. Um, at the closing, Kermit gets to um tries to get Linda to give him a little kiss. And uh 
to go back to this and and my 10 year old has got her hands in her face she i think i think they legit hated this episode <laughs> because of the the whole plot because of the plot not love stories no but kermit kermit now this, this i call bs on there's no way kermit was able to get piggy into that trunk there's absolutely a way that kermit was able to get piggy into that trunk he wasn't able to force piggy into that trunk but if say he had done a bull rider or a bull a matador tactic and tricked her into throwing herself into the trunk all he really had to do was close it i still don't buy it um but kermit kermit's taking care of piggy he's put her in the trunk and um he wheels it out and he's still trying to he's trying to get a kiss from linda still and um piggy's hand comes crashing through kill bill style comes crashing through the top of the trunk that was a nice touch linda decides that they're just gonna shake hands i am kermit in this episode <laughs> like i'm not getting kidnapped but as far as far as linda goes i am oh kermit. god which one of us would be more obnoxious to people that tried to kidnap us i honestly can't say it was a it was a good and solid entry for sure um i i had no real association with linda ronstadt before the episode started. I haven't seen The Last of Us. I know that she's been really big from that. I, yeah, I came in as a blank slate and I enjoyed her as a guest. sure you'd heard of our next guest though i have our final guest he is would you like me to tell you about roger moore i would i know a little bit about roger moore but i'd like to know more interesting guy a complicated guy also weirdly consistent but we'll get to that in a second roger moore born october 14th 1927 in stockwell london his dad george was a policeman and his mom doesn't really have a listed profession but one would assume a homemaker he was an only child. He got sick a lot as a kid. And illness would be something that plagued him throughout his life. Although, I mean, every image that persists of him is usually painting him as someone in debonair. And, well, that, that makes sense given two of his best-known roles. But as a child, he had dealt with chickenpox, measles, mumps, double pneumonia, and jaundice. He had also had to have his appendix, tonsils, and adenoids removed. So dude went through like a real rough patch. Also keeping in mind that he kind of grew up during the war and they had to be evacuated. On Around the time that he turned 18, his dad was investigating a robbery at the home of director Brian Desmond Hurst. And just sort of pitched his kid to Hurst as like, oh, you're a director, my son can act. And so Roger was cast as an extra in the film Caesar and Cleopatra. Off camera, a lot of the women around the set seemed to be really fond of Roger, which apparently prompted um, Hearst to pay for Roger to attend the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Um, he would be classmates with Lois Maxwell there, who was the original Miss Moneypenny. And around this time, he would also be in a, a number of other uncredited roles in films, like really small things. Uh, he was also, shortly after World War II, drafted into service where he served as an officer in the combined services entertainment section, which 
I imagine is something similar to what Reagan was do, doing during the war, but without some of the problematic aspects of that. He was deployed to a small depot in West Germany where he was basically in charge of looking after the other entertainers that were coming through the area. 1946, he gets married for the first time to actress and ice skater Dorn van Stein. She was another student at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. They lived with their family, but had a number of money problems, which sort of killed the relationship. She was also kind of physically abusive and didn't trust his skills as an actor, which, to be fair, I don't know how good his acting skills were at that point. She might regret the money thing later on, though. 1949, he gets his first TV appearance on a show called The Governess, which was a live broadcast, sort of like Sam and Friends would have been. Um, I don't know if any recordings of that persist to this day, but according to his autobiography, that was his first television role. Starting in the 50s, he worked as a model, appearing in ads for knitwear, as well as a variety of other things like toothpaste. In 1953, he would make his way to the United States and meet and marry his second wife, Welsh singer Dorothy Squires. So I, I took a quick peek into Dorothy Squires' biography because, well, she's interesting. She was eventually, I, I can't remember the exact term for it, but she wasn't allowed to press lawsuits for things because they assumed that she was malicious. More on that in a second. 1954, Roger signs a seven-year contract with MGM. His first film role was a small role in a movie called The Last Time I Saw Paris, which came out in 1954. The seven-year contract only ended up lasting about two years before he was released. He never really did very well. He was billed third on a couple of movies, but he didn't shine in any of those roles. 1958, he returns to England and stars in a 1958-59 to series based on Ivanhoe, where he got in touch with his internet Jackie Chan by doing some of his own stunts, which led to him having broken ribs and an axe blow to the helmet. While he was there, he would also, or while he was performing on the show, there were also guest appearances from people like Christopher Lee, who you would later see in a James Bond film, and Robert Brown, who played M in a number of Bond films in the 80s. So these guys are all sort of in orbit. 1959, he signs his next big movie production contract with Warner Brothers, and plays lead in a film called The Miracle before going to work on shows like The Alaskans and Maverick in 1962. 1961, dialing back for just a second, Roger decides to leave his second wife, Dorothy, for an Italian actress named Luisa Mattioli. Now, I say leave uh, because she wouldn't divorce him. She refused to divorce him and also sued him for loss of conjugal rights. I don't know if I've ever heard of someone trying to sue someone for trying to divorce them. I'm sure it's happened. I I guess it's, I wonder about it is the thing. Like there are a lot British of British law can be different. Who knows? Yeah, I can see that. And it was, you know, the fifties, uh, or excuse me, the sixties at this point. Squires also smashed in the windows at the house in France where Moore and Mattioli were living. So she was taking this very well. In 1969, they would fi- or she would finally let them get married by signing off that divorce. Incidentally, that's also the year that one of Moore's more famous roles came to a close. 1962, dialing it back again for a little bit, he's hired by our buddy Lord Lou Grade to play Simon Templar in The Saint. The I have Saint. actually heard of this one. Thank you, Val Kilmer. <laughs> this was the first thing that made him a household name, and not only did it make him a house- household name, he was famous internationally. It was a big, big break for him. The show would run until 1969, which, again, is the same year that his divorce finalized and he was able to remarry. He made a couple of movies immediately after that, a movie called Crossplot, which is just sort of like a spy comedy, and then there's The Man Who Haunted Himself, which is a a then-modern take on the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing, but 
in his autobiography, Morris said that this was the place or this was the role that he thought showed the most of his range um, and possibly his best performance due to the fact that he wasn't just playing the sort of Remington Steel suave character. He would work on with Lou Grade again on a series called The Persuaders, which was a big hit in a number of places, but not in the U.S. He also co-starred in that with Tony Curtis. Uh, they didn't get along well at first, but Moore was also paid a million pounds for a single season or series, as they would call it in the U.K., which made him the highest paid TV actor in the world at that time. And I don't know what that is adjusted for inflation, but that is a lot. So we get to the point that we've all been waiting for that I'll go through in brief because there's a lot. Our first James Bond film featuring the late, great Roger Moore was Live and Let Die, which was released in 1973, during which he would be hospitalized, or the, during the, sh- the shooting of which he would be hospitalized for kidney stones. There goes that old illness again. From there, he would star in The Man with the Golden Gun in 1974, The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977, Moonraker in 1979, For Your Eyes Only in 1981, around the time he recorded the episode of The Muppets Show. Octopussy in 1983, he had, they had to sort of like coax him back for this one because he was kind of done with it at that point. Uh, which, he was getting up there in age. A little bit, yeah. And this is also the same year that they released Never Say Never Again, which brought Connery back as Bond. So it was a they called it a little bit of like a Battle of the Bonds thing. And then his last one was A View to Kill in 1985. He was the oldest actor to have played Bond at that point, and I'm sure he was tired of it at that point. Do you know why he quit? I think because he was he felt weird about starring with actresses that were young enough to be his daughter or something like that. Tanya Roberts, who was uh, View to a Kill, was my first Bond movie. Mm. Tanya Roberts, who's the, the Bond girl in that, he was on set one day and realized that he was older than her mother. Yeah. And he was like, oh, okay, I gotta stop doing this. Respect. Like, I'm, I'm too old for this. <laughs> we've... We've sort of barraged through all the Bond films, A, because I haven't seen all the Bond films, and B, because it's not a Bond podcast. Um, but he was in a You num- listen to the James Bonding podcast with Matt Myra and Matt Gordley if you want to listen to a podcast that goes through all the James Bond movies. He wasn't just doing Bond films during this period, though. He was also in a number of other movies, mostly action movies with the occasional comedy or thriller thrown in. I think the most famous of those by today's standard was probably the original cannonball run where he was parodying his role as James Bond. Also in 1978, Moore became a bit of a tax exile. He fled to Switzerland while also bouncing around other locations and becoming close friends with the Prince of Monaco and eventually having citizenship there. Didn't like paying his taxes. He would disagree with that. And I think he's gone on record as saying that he did, but like also just imagine Becoming the actor that plays James Bond and then getting really close to a lot of actual royalty from different countries and just sort of trading on that a little bit. After he stopped playing Bond, he wouldn't act again for five years. His next movie would be the Van Damme film called The Quest, which I have seen. I barely remember it, but that might have been the first movie I saw him in. He would also be in Spice World, the Spice Girls movie that was the bane of my existence for my fifth grade year. Yeah, he was. The Cuba Gooding Jr. comedy Boat Trip, which... The less said about that, the better. <laughs> boat trip. Uh, he was a UNICEF I goodwill ambassador. Boat trip. I I feel like most people try to forget boat trip. I never saw a boat trip. But. It was Horatio Sands and Cuba Gooden Jr. And I don't know. Yeah. Oh, who is the actress? I I can picture her, but I don't remember her name. She kind of looks like Nicole Scherzinger from the Pussycat Dolls, but I can't remember what her name is. 
going back a little bit again, because this is all about jumping back and forth in time. 1991, after talking to Catherine Hepburn, he became a UNICEF goodwill ambassador and he remained that way for the rest of his life. He was politically conservative, but he could only be so active in that regard, although he was also very pro-union because of his status as a UNICEF goodwill ambassador, and that was something that was very important to him. 1993, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, at which point he separates from his wife, uh, Mattioli, and develops feelings for a friend who was a Danish socialite named Christina Kiki Tholstrup. Second verse, same as the first. Kiki. Second verse, same as the first. Mattioli refused to divorce him until 2002. So that's another nine-year span. (laughs) Um, And I think that there was a divorce settlement of around 10 million pounds. He would remain married to Tholstrup until she passed away in 2016 due to cancer. So the thing is... His relationships do tend to last a while, so it's not like he's just like bouncing around everywhere. Not that it's my place to judge. He was fitted with a pacemaker after collapsing on stage on Broadway uh, in 2003. In 2013, he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. May 23rd, 2017, Roger Moore passed, or his death was announced. I don't know if that, that, that is the day that he actually passed, but he was in Switzerland at the time, and his family announced that he had passed due to lung and liver cancers. He's he lived a life, but also that entire time he was battling illness and still just living a very full life. And he made it to a pretty decent age, too. Like, not quite a hundred, but anyway, that is our final Muppet Show guest star, Roger Moore. My James Bond. Not my favorite James Bond, but my James Bond. Uh, mine was Pierce Brosnan, which I'm grateful for because that started that whole crush on Famke Jansen. But the less said about that, the better. Um, the Muppet Show, episode 524, featuring guest star Roger Moore, was produced between April 29th and May 2nd of 1980. It would premiere in the UK October 5th of the same year, and it would make it stateside on September 27th, 1980. To get to our cold open, I think I can't think of anyone else that Pops immediately recognized especially with that eyesight, but he immediately knew that Roger Moore was James Bond. Roger points out that, you know, all of that's kind of make-believe. At which point, Pop says, okay, and then as soon as Roger's out of sight, he tries to inform someone that 007 has arrived. And Roger pops back in and just, like, gets him to do headlock and asks who he works for. He says, the frog, the frog. And Roger's like, oh, wait, I, I work for the frog, too. I mean, that's not exactly how he said it, but... Yeah, but, but here's my problem with this. Like, that wasn't Kermit's voice. You think it might have been Robin? No, it wasn't Robin either. I didn't recognize the voice on the radio. Hello, this is Agent Pops to control. Do you read me? Go ahead, Agent Pops. Yeah, 007 just past Check Poyabo headed your way. All right, who are you working for? <laughs> the frog, the frog. He could be contacting someone else who also works for the frog. Someone we don't know? I find that shocking. Every season we seem to meet someone who's been working on The Muppet Show forever. Pops did probably work there for four years before we ever saw him, yes. So we get to our Muppet Show theme, at which point Gonzo's trumpet sounds like a coach's whistle, and so a soccer ball is thrown at him, and this isn't the only time we've seen the trumpet shoved down his throat, but it's always an uncomfortable image. I still don't like it. I don't. I do not I like it I don't like it, Nick. It's like a weird like brass tracheotomy. I just, I'm not, I'm not down. It's not okay. I don't like it at all, Nick. I don't. It's the last time we're going to see it. We get to our opening. I am so... Anytime, anytime we cross link with the village people, <laughs> magic happens. Yeah. It's so good. We get to our opening number. 
which oh actually wait i'm skipping a step because we've also seen the chef get handsy with kermit for the first time for making some unflattering comments about the vikings oh yeah that's true that happens too but we get to our opening number and we see a bunch of viking pigs on a long ship described as gentle quaint fun loving fun loving old charmers uh but they sing in the navy which a takes me back to we want you we want you we want you as a new recruit we want you we want you we want you as a new recruit where can you find pleasure search the world for treasure learn science technology where where can you begin to make your dreams all come true on the land or on the sea where where can you learn to fly, play in sports or skin dive, study oceanography? Where? Sign up for the Big Bend or sit in the grandstand when your team and others be. Where? In the Navy. Yes, you can sail the seven seas. In the Navy. Yes, you can put your mind at ease. In the Navy. Now people make a stand. In the Navy. PE in elementary school because my gym teacher apparently just loved the village people. But also, we get to see Link. I think Link is still wearing something like a neckerchief in this. And the theory is still pulling strong, but they're going in and stealing the livestock as... Like, they're pillaging. But also, press-ganging people into the Navy? Are they, like, liberating livestock? I'm... This feels like it could be interpreted three ways. I love it in any case, but... Classic Muppet opener with the Vikings. I mean, I, I do like Kermit's introduction of the gentle, quaint, fun-loving old charmers. The village people in Link, like you said. Yeah. It's I don't know. It's a solid number. There's only so much to say about it, but... My, my kid was very upset because she learned in school today that Vikings didn't really wear horns on their helmets. <laughs> she learned that in school today, and she was very upset that they had horns on these Vikings. She said, she said multiple times, that's not true, because she just read about it today. I didn't want to explain to her, there's also a lot of things Vikings did that they're not showing. It's true. So we're not going for accuracy here, thank God. We go backstage, and Scooter and Bo are showing Kermit, which you can see this joke coming a mile away, but they've brought in a number of pies for the closing number. At which point, Kermit reminds him that he wanted spies for the closing number because it's supposed to be James Bond themed. They're gonna they're gonna ride this spies pies thing a little too far. Yeah, but it still it doesn't bother me as much because when they actually show up, it's it feels like a half decent payoff. But Kermit gets pied in the face because of course he does. And Bo, being as literal as Bo tends to be, is he's efficient. I'm gonna call Bo efficient uh, in terms of getting rid of the pies. And we get to. Our first number with Roger Moore. So I've got a couple of thoughts on this. Piggy is given over to her thirsts and does not understand consent. But also, this this entire sketch maps to me like the gender-flipped version of a guy with an acoustic guitar trying to sing a love song to someone while maintaining very aggressive eye contact and just not taking a hint. So Miss Piggy sings a flirtatious version of On a Slow Boat to China, which was originally written by by Frank Lesser for the film Neptune's Daughter in 1949. Roger does not consent to this. Roger, mon amour, you know we are meant to be, vous et moi? Vous et moi, nous? Huh? We. Oh, oui, 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 oui. 
What are you trying to say, Miss Piggy? Oh, I'd love to get you, Roger, on a snowboat to China. All to myself, alone. I can't believe it. She's singing to me. Get you and keep you in my arms evermore. Look, look, Piggy, I must be honest, I have a date. Leave all your lady. Oh, we've been on the faraway shore. Yes, but what about Kermit? He's your true love. Any step of the way. As a matter of fact, he keeps trying to let her know that he's got a date on the way, and Miss Piggy's like, I'm going to ruin that for you, too. Yeah, he does have a date on the way. Yeah, he's got a date on the way. And uh, Piggy has. It, this reminds me very much of um, Nureyev. Oh, baby, it's cold outside. Yeah, yeah, I could see that for sure. Which I think is also a Frank Lesser song. Yeah, this is this is a weird. I, I noticed this when I was watching it. It's kind of a weird number for a guest star, isn't it? Um, he doesn't like. He doesn't do much. To be fair, he just kind of delivers one-liners. I think he's trying to play the straight man to the best of his ability, but I guess if we can't close the show out without seeing Horny Piggy one more time. No, and, and I'm okay with Horny Piggy. I got no problem with that. Uh, I think it's funny, and, and it, 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 watching these back to back, it feels like her revenge. It feels like revenge for last week. I just wonder, like, what talent of his is this showing off? I think it's just supposed to be showing off some degree of smooth. I guess. Yeah. I'm not trying to be mean about it. I just, it was just, it just was interesting to me. I read it as a straight man sketch. The, the more uncomfortable Roger looks, the more ham Frank can go while he's playing Piggy. It's a Piggy sketch without, with uh, Roger Moore's backup. Exactly. Yeah. I thought it worked. Um, especially as uh, yeah. his date is Annie Sue, which. Yeah, that was, that was funny. I haven't seen Annie Sue in a while, I think. Or actually, we, I think we've seen her lately a couple of times. We've seen her a couple of times. I don't think I've heard her voice in a while. Roger, I'm here. Annie Sue, how lovely you look. Oh, this is your date? Yes, we're going to the opening of Ham. And she looks at Piggy, realizes what Piggy's doing, and is just like, oh, yeah, I know what this is. You don't want her. It's fine. But, uh, yeah, uh, a funny number. Yeah. Funny number. That's good. Uh, to you, to your earlier point about the spies pies thing, probably running a little, th- little far, we go backstage where Roger stops to, ask Com- uh, stops to ask Kermit if they use spies on the show, and Kermit asks spies, but... Then Roger lifts up his foot and you see it standing in one of those pies. This is airspace that could have been given to something else, but it's fine. Then we get our final New Zealand number where he has made peace with the fish. Um, and they're singing a wet version of you light up my life. And he gets the hook from, from piggy, but it, the song itself was originally performed by Debbie Boone. It won the 1977 Oscar for best song from the movie of the same title. I'm generally happy when I see Lou on stage. Just especially in anything approaching a solo thing, just unapologetically being New Zealand. The document, the documentary shows them making this uh, recording the audio for this sketch mm-hmm. and they're doing it by gurgling water and trying to sing while gurgling water. Yeah, no, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. Also, Lou continues to stay in my good graces because Lou is not afraid of Miss Piggy in the slightest. Yeah, no, he doesn't. He's not, is he? No, he is. Uh, he is down to clown. And so Miss Piggy's still standing there with her hook and Lou's got a barracuda. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, we've never seen him like try to use his fish for as like weapons. His boomerang fists are intended for joy. But. Right. And joy is not possible. They become fish of fury. But he's got a bear. Like all this time, he's had like a barracuda up his sleeve. Well, he's been on the Muppet Show for how long? He's got to know. Just in case shit gets real, he keeps a barracuda on him. Roger comes out and asks if the show is always like this. And Kermit tells him that it's actually a pretty quiet night. And as soon as he says that, because of course he would say that, um, he gets trampled by everyone getting ready for veterinarian's hospital. But he immediately pops up after that, that that was a foreseen disaster because I mean, he's been doing it long enough. Yeah. That's our, that's our run of the mill disaster. Yeah. It's, I mean, he's got enough concussions for that not to be a problem. Um, we go to veterinarian's hospital where we see one of the Vikings from the opening number who quote blundered at his plundering and was stupid with his pillaging. And it's a, it's a solid veterinarian's hospital sketch. I couldn't tell you most of the jokes that happened in it, but that's sort of standard for veterinarian's hospital, which is not the same thing as saying that I didn't laugh at any of them. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, Nurse Piggy, ready to save another life? Yes, Dr. Bob. Good. Send the patient to another hospital. (laughs) Dr. Bob, this is a special patient. Can't you tell by looking at him? Yes, he looks like a very unlucky bullfighter. Gored right through the gourd. Oh, Oh, boy. Dr. Bob. Mm. That is a helmet, and he is a Viking. I know all about them. They come from Denmark. One of my ancestors was a Viking. Oh, this isn't going to be a great Dane joke, is it? Well, it's a Dane joke, but I wouldn't call it great. And a couple of the jokes were about Vikings, I think. I th- you're, you're, you're right, though. I don't, I don't tend to remember the individual jokes from, from uh, Veterinary's Hospital. Yeah, but at least like every other time they get like a good audible laugh. I couldn't tell. And I guess part of it's just that it's so situational because it's just a run on pun. We get our UK pot. We get our UK spot, which I'm grateful for, but also wish wasn't a UK spot because I'm painfully aware that this is our last episode of the Muppet show. And we always want to see the mayhem groove. We always want to see the mayhem play. Rolf, Zoot, Janice, Floyd, Animal, Lips, and Trumpet Girl all perform a version of How High the Moon, which is an old jazz standard, but it's just... It's nice to listen. Like, if there was, I, and there might be actually, if there is an album of the musicians behind the Mayhem just playing tunes, I would love to have that. Um, they played Outside Lands a few years ago, and that's the only time that I've been sad that I wasn't about Outside Lands. It's great. My daughter turned to me and said, "Did we have we ever gotten one of these where there's no words?" <laughs> yeah, like, we have. Not, not, not a lot. Yeah, but yeah, no, the puppetry in this is really great as usual with them and. Uh, yeah, it's fun to see. It's it's the orchestra, so they're dressed in their purple, and um, it's not it's not the full mayhem. Doctor Teeth kind of got sidelined, didn't he? He did for this last one, for for the for the last season or two, I think. I feel like we've seen him a couple of times. Granted, with this particular one, we've been running at this for a minute. I just feel like we haven't seen Doctor Teeth in a while. But this is more the orchestra than it is the mayhem. Yeah. <laughs>
then get to our last bear on patrol, which they, I, I can't remember what kind of salesman they were expecting first, but they end up dealing with a handcuff salesman. Uh, they think it's going to be a toupee salesman. That was what it because Link's Link, salesman, a toupee, of Link is trying on a toupee. Ever vain, Mr. Hogthrob is trying on a toupee. I bet he thinks the song is about him. They end up meeting a guy that they think is a salesman, but he's a handcuffed salesman and, and effectively robs them. <laughs> like, I want to know who has the gall to go in and rob a police station, but I'm also the image of the octopus on top of the head in that earlier patrol bear sketch is firmly burned into my mind. So I feel like this isn't the first time this has happened. What I like about bear and patrols, it shows us how much smarter Fozzie is than Link. He's brilliant by, by comparison. Because Fozzie's in on it. Fozzie's reticent from the beginning. He doesn't buy into this. I think Fozzie is beaker in this sketch, and he's suffered for this kind of thing a little too much. Fozzie's just not assertive enough to make to stop it. Yeah. Doesn't have enough confidence to stop it, but he knows it's wrong the whole time. He's like, Chief, this isn't, Chief, this isn't right. Yeah, but try getting a word in edgewise with Link when Link is in full Link mode. It was a good close for Bear. It didn't feel, none of this feels final. I know we've already talked about that, but it was a good close for Bear on Patrol. Yeah, none of it's going to feel, feel final. Like, it's just, it's not that type of finale, you know? They, they didn't want there to be a final episode. So, so there is no final episode. It's eternal, you know? We go backstage again where Kermit calls the Secret Service for a bunch of spies. So here's the thing that I love about Muppet Logic. A lot of writers will worry about verisimilitude or trying to make things make sense as to why someone would have X access to X, Y, or Z. The Muppets are the ones that will just go straight for the, oh, wait, here's a screenplay so we don't have to info dump, or, oh, we're going to travel by map so we can go straight to our location. And you know what? You just buy it. So the Secret Service is listed in the yellow pages, and from them, Kermit orders spies. Yeah, there's a handful of spies. Right. Sort of like ordering ninjas without really knowing what ninjas are. Um, but Kermit was looking for spies for the closing number and he gets, they look like Pinkertons. Like my entire impression was that they're either private eyes or just general Pinkertons. They don't, it, it doesn't scream spy to me. I don't know. Kind of like spy versus spy, like mad magazine type of spy. Yeah, I can see that. Especially with the, the hooked noses in that context. But, um, they were looking, or Kermit mentions that he was looking for a big spy spectacular featuring James Bond, and all the spies really want to get rid of James Bond. Now, assuming that these are British spies, since they were in the phone book. Well, yeah, but they're, but remember the Muppet, Muppet Theater takes place in Atlanta, in the United States. But we were allies at that point. It was us against Russia. No, that's true. I don't, when they say we're going to take down James Bond, I was confused as to what side they were on. Yeah, I, I mean, think they're rogue agents, Nick. That that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. If spy if spy movies have taught me anything, it's to beware rogue agents. There's always a rogue agent. Um, Kermit tries to tell Roger about the closing number, which I feel like is a conversation they should have had before now, but it is what it is. And Roger's been in charge of his own. He's like, I'm doing something cute, surrounded by oodles of cute, fluffy little creatures. Which sounds like something a serial killer would say, but he is someone with a license to kill, so maybe that tracks. Spies overhear this and decide they are also going to dress up as cute, fluffy animals. From there we go to our last Muppet Sports, which is a terrifying sport, and I don't know who thought this was a good idea. <laughs> Why? What could possibly go wrong with aerial billiards? Uh... 
So cross country billiards. Thank you very much. That's right. Because they can travel at much higher speeds. Lewis Gazager covers the annual Dwight D. Eisenhower Memorial cross country billiards tournament. When did Eisenhower die? Um, I don't know. In the sixties, probably uh, you just, you see a lot of images of, I guess, a green screen of these white pool balls that are just flying through the sky as these guys keep trying to hit things. And I'm just waiting for one of them to cock someone in the face the entire time. It's a fun, like it looks like they're shooting an indoor, but it's, it's a fun little beast. It's way, way out of left field, but that's what it's supposed to be for the wild world of sports. Yeah. The animation was kind of cute. Mm. Cause that's actually the balls is flat out animated. Huh? Yeah. Um, it's not, uh, it's not there. My daughters were very, uh, my oldest was like, that's was like, that looks fake. I'm like, hey, doesn't it all look fake? <laughs> like, doesn't all of this look fake to you? <laughs> but no, that, that part looked fake to her. The puppets don't look fake. Well, that's practical effects versus. Yeah. Yeah. Versus something else. Yeah. So the animation, it was just interesting to see, you know, normally they wouldn't notice stuff like that, but the special effect popped out as my daughter or something that bothered her. Poor Muppet News, man. This one's weird, man. It is weird. It's also sort of like a, a mandala effect sort of thing, but at least this time he's not getting beat up too badly. No, it's still weird. It is. It's weird. It's not not weird. Here is a Muppet News Flash. An international spy ring is trying to sneak ridiculous stories into the news. Fortunately, with the tight security in the Muppet Newsroom, it can't happen here. In other news, a black and yellow striped mackerel was elected king this morning and... <laughs> what? Yes? Where have you been? Well, I've been showing His Majesty around the newsroom. <laughs> Only mackerel. No, your highness will do. Um, maybe he was there to see Lou. But the newsman reports on an international spy ring trying to sneak ridiculous stories into the news, which then goes straight to a story about a black and yellow striped mackerel being elected king. Which is obviously a fake news story put in there by spies. You would think that until the king arrives. Until <laughs> the king mackerel arrives. For his interview, I guess, that was scheduled and no one told the newsman about. Okay, sure. Here's the joke. All right. Okay, it looks it looks like it sounds like a fake news story and it turns out not to be. Okay. Why does the king hit him? Because he was disrespected. It just seems a little harsh. I mean, at least he wasn't a holy mackerel. The king of Thailand or something? <laughs> but uh Yeah, no, just a just a newsman. But yeah, a, kind of a weird one. Yeah, it is a weird one to close on, but this guy's He's probably just relieved to not have to do this anymore. Yeah, of all of of any of the characters, he's got to be the most <laughs> okay with the show ending. Him or Beaker, but then again, Beaker's story might get darker without a show being there. We go backstage, and Kermit lets Scooter know that spies have snuck in. The spies that were requested, mind you, but they've snuck in among the animals. And Kermit does not know enough about his staff to know which ones are supposed to be there as opposed to not, at least not for the moment. But he tells Kermit, or he tells Scooter to tell them to go home because if you tell a spy to go home, that's what they're going to do. And obviously no one does go home. At which point we get to our closing number, which honestly, if you're going to have James Bond on The Muppet Show and you need to have a spy number, this is kind of magical. Roger sings a song called Talk to the Animals from the 1967 version of Dr. Doolittle, but also randomly just starts fighting them because, you know, spies. 
Um, yeah, he gets attacked by spies. And changing the lyrics as he does. <laughs> yeah, no, this is uh, this is funny. He, it, this is the closest he gets to singing. Mm. It's kind of he's kind of talk singing, a little bit of talk singing going on. Yeah, which which is fine. I wouldn't. I it's it's better than that. Better than asking him to real sing, if that's not his thing. I think I remember seeing any musicals. I might have just missed them though. From from this, I would assume not. <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, and and these these spies that. Kermit called in the spies. We don't know what nation they're from. But they're in the phone book. They're in the phone book under the Secret Service. So they're secrets. I don't, I don't know what these spies are, man. I mean, when you think about it, how many people actually know what the NSA does? It's just... And they want to kill an OSS agent. Yeah. It's really weird. But he takes care of them in, in hysterical ways. We, we get to our closing where... Roger informs Kermit that he's learned his lesson, which is strange because I don't think he's had an arc all episode. He was pretty static, basically from the time he got pops in a headlock. Um, but he is through. Yeah, with- uh, yeah. I, I didn't understand that either when he said that. When he says he's learned his lesson, I was like, "What?" I mean, I understand there's a punchline after that, but I was still, I was still like, "Learned your lesson." It's not like he came in here hating animals or uh, there was nothing. There was. You're right. There's no arc. So I don't know what lesson he's learned. Yeah, I, I, I can't really make heads or tails of that one. But he said that he's going to stick to weird and disgusting animals, um, at which point Beaky and Shaky Sanchez and a Casbonian and a Kuzbanian Foob and the Lunch Encounter Monster and a Frackle and a couple of crocodiles come on the stage with him. Again, it's going to feel weird. It's going to feel weird because it's like the last episode, but it's not the last episode. It's not even the last episode they shot, right? Hmm. So, so it's, it's kind of weird to like, you get to the end and you're like, and you end with a, a solid episode. Yeah. Not the best of the season, not the worst of the season, but it just feels kind of weird. Cause you're like, that's the last one, but we're just trained I think now to, to think about things like that. Think of finales and stuff and everything. Next time. I've got five on it. Uh, next time, we'll be back with our season five wrap up show, our top five, top five lists. And uh, we will talk about, look back on season five, talk about what we liked, maybe what we didn't like. And uh, we'll talk, maybe reflect a little bit on what it meant to have watched this whole show. And then we'll uh, we'll be off to, to things beyond. If you get a chance, swing by your podcast app of choice. It's probably the one you're using right now. So you, I know it's open. Go to that and see if you can rate our show. You know, give us four or five stars. Give us a nice little review. Helps out a lot. What does my friend say? Five, five stars or if you hated it, five sarcastic stars. But uh, so that, that helps out a lot, the reviews, apparently. That's what they tell me. Anyway, until next time, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, I guess I'll go talk to the animals. What animals? The wife and kids. Oh. <laughs>